we hold everyone else outside of us responsible for our own experience, right? You made me feel this way. And it's like, absolutely, we are interdependent. You know, we can trigger things and do things to hurt others. However, we also are responsible for our own feelings and reactions. So yeah, it's getting to this root of taking responsibility for ourselves, which that's hard. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Therapist Uncensored, where we bring you the latest on modern attachment and relational neurobiology in ways that you can use in everyday life. We are pleased to continue to collect resources that add to complexity and context in the area of attachment. How can we call it modern attachment without some of these updates, right? For those outside the relational mainstream, due to culture, queerness, kink, gender fluidity, or those who are non-monogamous, we have you in mind for today's episode. Specifically, that's why we're doing it, actually. However, we especially invite those who find these ideas challenging or even weird to join in in this lively discussion. There's so much to learn and so many assumptions to challenge. I know I learned a ton and it's a great conversation and I think that you're going to love it or at least you're going to have feelings about it. I'll, I'll just guarantee that. How about that? I sat down with Jessica Fern, who is the author of Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Non-Monogamy, specifically to bring us up to date on understanding security and relational configurations that are not typically studied or understood. And boy, did she deliver. Jessica Fern is a psychotherapist, a certified clinical trauma professional, and she has an international private practice where she works with individuals, couples, and people in multiple partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas. She particularly enjoys helping people embody new possibilities in life and love, and you'll hear that in today's discussion for sure. Now, we have committed to keep these episodes free to the public, and we love that people want to learn about this social science. And there are two things you can do to help us out with that. The first thing, completely free, won't cost a penny, is simply to subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify and to leave us a ranking and review where you can. That really helps discoverability. So does just something as simple as sharing the, an episode that you feel like somebody would enjoy or would be able to benefit from. So word of mouth, very important. Thank you for that. And then if you're able to, we also have an opportunity to join us in an exclusive patron community for as little as $5 a month. A lot of people do that just to support the show and support the production. But you also happen to get an ad-free feed and just some bonus content and some educational opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise. To do that, you would go to therapistuncensored.com backslash join so for example, we will be launching along with this podcast, an opportunity to study polysecure with a group of your peers. As an aside, if you're listening and you are a patron, then be sure and sign up for the polysecure reading group. We have reading pods where that we can go deep dive into some of the material that is interesting. And I know this one will be. All right, without further ado, I share my conversation with polysecure author, Jessica Fern. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you join us on Therapist Uncensored. 
Thank you, Sue. It's great to be here. So why don't you give us a really quick overview of where you're coming from, your perspective, and then we can dive right into this very exciting new content around attachment with non-monogamous couples and really opening up this conversation from the tradition that attachment has brought to us. So I am a psychotherapist. I'm a relationship coach. I'm a certified trauma professional. And of course, I've been trained in many modalities, but you know, for the purpose of today, right, there's a lot of like trauma-informed, attachment-informed, narrative-informed, you know, modalities. And where are you in the world? In the world, I just moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, I love Asheville. Yeah, we're new here. We were living in Costa Rica for a year, before that in Colorado for many years. So you published a book, Polysecure. Mm -hmm. There's not many like it. <laughs> the minute that I heard about the book, I was very interested. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was thinking, this is either going to be really great. And or like, really Really bad. right. <laughs> <laughs> or like, oh, no, you know, so I was really, really happy to say I've, our community, we have an online community that's awesome. Polysecure, the book is in the queue for a study group. So it definitely passed all the sniff tests that we have on our end around that it's very solid. It's very persuasive without feeling like you're selling something mm. balanced. So in that sense, trustworthy. How's the book been received? It's been tremendous. You know, it's really been an overwhelming, of course, it's not perfect, but an overwhelming positive response. It feels like it really fills a gap for so many of us that, you know, are welcoming of the refreshing reframes. Yeah. And that's what I continually hear is it sort of filled a gap, especially in the non-monogamy literature that people were needing. Like I keep saying like, oh, I think I was just the cook that like assembled the meal people were hungry for, you know, <laughs> and people were needing an attachment lens on what's happening for their non-monogamous challenges. Because it's so easy for us to unconsciously project what we think we know about attachment. And then that colors how we see something that we might not be familiar with. It's easy to pathologize. So the title of the book is Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Consensual Non-Monogamy. And again, our guest today is Jessica Fern. So you were saying you're kind of the cook. How did you end up writing something like this? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, a several phase story. So, and we can get into this as you want to, but, you know, there's my own process of opening up a monogamous marriage to polyamory. But then as a psychotherapist practicing in Colorado, you know, I put it on out there. I'm working with non-monogamous people and that was a gap, you know, especially however many years ago, there weren't as many professionals. So that niche took off and just hours and hours and hours of listening to how and why people were struggling and me wanting to make sense of it. Before my therapy career, I was um, a researcher and was really trained in grounded theory. I don't know if you're familiar with that, right? But it's like, instead of imposing the theory onto the data, it's really like, what is the data telling me? What are the patterns that are emerging from these stories that I'm listening to? So I did the same thing with my clients. And I came up with a talk on couples transitioning from monogamy to non-monogamy. And there were several points in that of when couples come in and they're struggling, they might say, oh, we're dealing with agreement challenges or we're fighting more. or One of us can't get over our jealousy, but we go further and it's like, oh, those aren't root issues. Those are symptoms of 
deeper issues. And one of those happens to be attachment ruptures. So attachment came up in sort of one of the five, six things that I saw as more of the deeper root issues. And I met Eve Rickert at a conference in 2019 and she was um, let people pitch book ideas. And so as I was pitching a few, she was like, we need a book on attachment yesterday. (laughs) And that was sort of became a book all in of itself. I definitely do want to get into it. You know, people will be listening from all over the world, some more familiar with this than others. The good news is before we got on, Jessica asked me, you know, how familiar our audience was with attachment. And I was able to say, oh, they know this stuff. And if they don't, and if you guys don't, if you're new to this, you know, this is a first episode, anything you want to know about attachment, we've got in this podcast. (laughs) We've got an incredible library with the direct people who did the research. So you're in the right place. So I think instead of just focusing on attachment per se, we're going to be talking about the new information around the perspective, the biases that might be there. Because what I thought was this isn't this book isn't just for couples interested in opening up or folks in non-monogamous pairs, quadruples, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. pods. I don't know uh, what the girls. Yeah, <laughs> what what are they called? Polycules. Polycules. Okay. I, love, I say I love learning this stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's a molecule, right? A polymolecule. Polycule. That's wonderful. So let's do a really quick basics around non-monogamy rather than starting with attachment. And then we can just go from there. Yeah. So non-monogamy is an umbrella term that can mean and look like and be expressed in many different ways. And we're talking about consensual non-monogamy. So that's the First important distinction, right? Cheating would be non-consensual, non-monogamy. Someone doesn't know, right? And there's deception going on. Whereas consensual or ethical non-monogamy is everyone involved knows that there are either multiple love romantic partners and or multiple sexual partners. And those are kind of the two different spectrums, right? Of how open and closed you are emotionally, romantically, and how open and closed you are sexually. And you can fit anywhere in sort of that. So some people are more emotionally closed. They're with, you know, hey, we're the couple, we're the primary, but maybe we sexually play with other people together. Or we have some sex on the side sort of situation. The other end could be like polyamory would be I'm falling in love and creating like partner-based relationships with more than one person. So there's many ways people do it. And then there's everything in between that. Everything in between that, right. Open marriage, hierarchical poly, non-hierarchical poly, solo polyamory, (laughs) swinging, right? Monogamish. People have probably heard of these terms. And you said something, and I hadn't thought of this before, but we think of it typically related to sexuality. But you said kind of on the plane of emotional openness. Is there such a thing of kind of polyamory that's more of an emotional? Yeah. Yeah, there's people who feel more polyromantic. So they might have a few really not traditional at all. These aren't friends. (laughs) There is romance. There is a different quality of that connection that they are with somebody else. Or people who are sort of identify as asexual, but they still might have more than one romantic partner. Many ways this can look. I appreciate you taking the time to kind of bring us up to speed because I'm also aware of this idea of labor and the labor of teaching people, whether it be, you know, the put on uh, folks that are gender binary of like, 
what? What is that? You know, bring us along and the offense that that can bring. Right. And that's one of the challenges that so many of the clients that have come to me have said, they're like, I had a great therapist. It wasn't even that they had a bad experience. They're like, I loved my therapist, but I was spending too much time educating them on who I was and what I was doing and all the monogamous bias kept coming in. And it's like, yeah, that's a lot of labor to do when you're paying someone. (laughs) That's right. So that's the favor that you're doing us as you're, you know, we're getting to ask these questions and learn. The book does it really, really well. How much does this occur? Is it different in different cultures? Yeah, I don't know about cultural studies as much. You know, most of it is done, we can say, within the U.S. I mean, within the last 10 years, there was a study that showed about 4 to 5% of the population was identifying as non-monogamous. I think it's much, much more, actually, because many people, how you're defining non-monogamy for one, you know, is the question, people admitting it. And then also, I think we're seeing with millennials and now younger, they're just starting out this way. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say is that's got to be yeah. low because those, those yeah. folks wouldn't be captured yet. Right. They wouldn't have been captured yet, you know, or even just in my own family who everyone, the generation above me, everyone would have identified as monogamous. But when my first husband and I came out as Polly, two or three aunts at the family party came forward and were like, yeah, I was in a triad in college. And, you know, <laughs> like, oh yeah, we, we did swinging for a few years. And these are like traditional folks, you know? <laughs> So there's also just that, you know, it's, yeah. Well, but that speaks to like parts of our identity that we've had to dissociate. Yeah, right. And it's interesting to even think of sexuality as an identity, right? Because for some of us, it is it is very much an identity. And for some folks, it feels very private and it, they don't want to wear it as an identity. And some people don't feel like they even have that choice to conceal it. So it's, yeah, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Passing and yeah. not passing. Right, exactly. <laughs> Something you said in the book that I think would be helpful also to sort out is that there's a difference between a poly orientation and lifestyle. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. And so this is what, again, through sort of the grounded theory approach, just listening to, you know, thousands of hours of people describing themselves and their experience. And then once I put this out there, getting the feedback from people that they did sort of feel this way. And so some people really describe polyamory or non-monogamy, whether it's sexual or romantic as an orientation they say, this is how I'm wired. This is who I am. I don't even feel like I'm choosing this. Like, it's just me. (laughs) I'm not going to argue with that, right? Why would I? Then there's other folks that are like, yeah, you know, I could go either way. I'm happy to play for a while in this direction or experiment there. I was non-monogamous for a few years. Now I'm monogamous. It feels like a choice that they can sort of move in and out of depending on life situations or partners. And then on the other end, you hear people who are monogamous and it's not just the cultural societal conditioning. They're like, this is who I am. I could not be with more than one person. (laughs) Like it's just not possible. So yeah, I see it as a spectrum and some people it is more of a choice or more of a philosophy that they align with. And that's why they do it. And other people, it's definitely feels like their orientation and 
I knew a woman, though, I love how she said it. She said years before she was solo polyamorous. So solo polyamorous means? Solo polyamory is when you don't usually couple up and have like, I have a primary partner and we live together. We share finances. You know, it's more living like you're your own primary partner. You know, you're identified first as a solo autonomous being who then has partners. And those people, though, the misconception is that solo poly folks are like avoidant and non-committal. That's not the case at all. They might be very involved and invested with folks, but they don't do the assumption that we're going to live together. We're going to have finances together. We're going to do family together. All of that is negotiated. My experience with it has been the boundary work that has to happen to be able to navigate this. I don't think there's a couple out there in any form or individual even that couldn't benefit from some of the work that happens in the area of boundaries. Yeah, there's so much work around communication, knowing myself, knowing my needs and my preferences, being able to negotiate that in non-triggered, reactive, defensive ways. Like These are all capacities and skills. And then being able to do boundary work. Yeah. So there's a whole skill set. And I talk, I'm talking about this in my next book that people open up and they don't realize, oh no, <laughs> the skill sets I use to be healthy or functional in monogamy aren't actually sufficient. And I have to up-level my skills. You know, even we, it's a joke, calendaring, like how to manage multiple dates and relationships. Like you have to know how to, <laughs> how to do your calendar. You're going to get into trouble fast. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so true. So one of the points that you make in the book is around that we can have, you know, we talk a lot about secure functioning and what is secure functioning. And I think the point that you made that if it's systematic, if it's because that you're married and you have a shared bank account, and so then you don't have to worry and you really believe your partner's never going to leave you. And we call that security. Yeah. So then in that sort of more protected space, we don't have to develop these muscles, these skills. And so we end up, I think, in the absence of that, then it is exposed all the things that we don't know how to do. Exactly. And I make that distinction of a lot of people in monogamy, they rely on the structure for secure attachment. And it's not that you can't, we do get some security or a lot of security from structural aspects of a relationship. But I want people to really be creating their secure attachment through their emotional experience together, their relational experience, not the shared bank account, the fact of legal marriage or owning a home together. There's many people right now cringing a little bit. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, there's more, you know, especially right now during the stress that is we've been under for a couple of years. I think couples are really stressed and boy, we all are. The kids are, the teachers are, everybody is. You know, my hope would be bringing in some of these skills to learn and really focusing less on the structure and more on your personal experience. And it does go right then to trauma and attachment in my mind, because why am I okay with not having that secure experience? Maybe I think that's all that I am supposed to have, or those sorts of things. And you mentioned the avoidant, people thinking if you're your own partner, that you're avoidant or schizoid or, you know, those things. Let's talk about the research related to attachment. What is actually true versus what we might think is true? 
So there's sort of a parallel. I think it was in the eighties. There was a study around cholesterol that came out and it was like, cholesterol is bad. And then you look at the study and it was, they fed rabbits like meat that don't eat meat. <laughs> right? It was like something like that. And you're like, we can't conclude this for humans, that you know? <laughs> therefore all cholesterol is bad. Right. So there's a similar problem that's occurred that initial studies around attachment asked monogamous people if they were open to the idea of non-monogamy. And it just so happened that the people who had the more dismissive attachment style were the ones that were more likely to say, I would consider non-monogamy. So what do you think the takeaway was? Absolutely. Well, yeah, you know. Therefore, <laughs> therefore people right, who practice non-monogamy are dismissive or, or basically right. are insecurely attached. Yeah, exactly. And that is not the case at all. So there's only been like a handful of actual studies, though, and they're all survey data. But they've done, you know, several thousand folks. And they've looked at people who were non-monogamous and polyamorous or swinging. And it's great. They show that in many cases, there's absolutely no difference in the attachment styles of people practicing monogamy or non-monogamy. And in some cases, the people practicing polyamory were actually a little bit more securely attached. Which right. makes perfect sense in the sense what we were just talking about, sense. right? <laughs> exactly. Like to really do this on an ongoing basis, you do need to be more secure in yourself and your relationships. So, so far, the data does not confirm that non-monogamous folks practicing it are any more or less insecurely attached, which is great. And in some cases, a little bit more secure. Well, it makes me think of the research around when you don't come by security naturally with your family, but you do a ton of work on yourself, that you really can function securely. And in some cases, your reflective function, your capacity, those skills are higher if you didn't come by it naturally because you've worked your tail off for it. Exactly. Right. The earned security. The earned security. So this is similar, that you really work on your balance. You really skill up. There's a benefit of that around how you feel in the world and your closeness that you can have with your partner. Exactly. Like there are studies that show the best predictor of your attachment style with your child wasn't your previous attachment style as much as did you start to work on your attachment yet? <laughs> right. Oh, interesting. Right? So people who had, you know, more of a disorganized experience, you know, as adults, if they had done attachment work and like created coherent narratives, they were, you know, more likely to have a secure bond with their own children. So it's really where we are in our own personal development work is what makes the difference. So what can we glean? What can we learn around? You'd said that you had given these talks around moving. Again, whether people are interested in actually opening the relationships up or not, it's still really useful to kind of learn kind of cross-culturally. So what can you bring us as far as what you've noticed or what the research says? Yeah, in terms of attachment and non-monogamy. Yes, and the skills basically too, you know, that we get the benefit of if we have to work out those boundaries. Yeah, I mean, it's important to name that often to help people realize that potentially what's going on, you know, you have a non-monogamous couple or client, you know, in your office and they're struggling and to start inquiring about what's going on in the attachment-based relationship. So the transition, especially for a couple that's been monogamous, it's a huge deal to open up and where there was structural security and now there isn't anymore. So even if they all felt secure before, they're going to have show these new signs of feeling insecure because 
non-monogamy is less secure in some ways, <laughs> right, than monogamy because it doesn't have that structural aspect. So a lot of people, they open up and they just start to really feel wobbly or completely shaken to their core, right, the degree that it's happening. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is primal attachment panic starts to show up. You know, so people who have never felt a lot of anxiety, potentially, right, they might have even been more on the dismissive end of the spectrum, right? And now their partner is in their consenting, great, I'm wanting to do this, go out and have fun on your date. And their partner's gone, and they're completely melting down. How do they make sense of this? So explaining what attachment panic, primal panic is, your brain might know your partner's going to come home, but some aspect of your nervous system says, attachment figure away, danger, threat, I might die. (laughs) And we feel like we're terrified to have our partner out of reach. And nowadays, our partners are in constant reach with the phone. I mean, it's incredible. It's, It's actually not healthy in many ways, right? We don't get a response within minutes and we're offended or we're worried that they're dead. You know, like it goes to either extreme, right? So the leash that we have in our relationships to each other, that's a lot of even the differentiation that's needed. And this is a process that many partners didn't differentiate before they open up. There's aspects of codependency, of identity fusion, of can you just have a night not together and you're good, right? Like, do you know how to be with yourself and you're okay, right? What I call the secure attachment to self. So that's a huge skill that's really needed in this. But again, it's not just non-monogamous folks who benefit from that skill set. Like we all, you know, could use probably an upgrade in our secure attachment with self. Could you say a little more than like the difference between enmeshment and closeness? I see that on a spectrum too, that we have closeness, you know, and it would be a spectrum of independence and connection at the two poles. And then in connection, we can go too far and it becomes fusion, right? It becomes enmeshment. It's not me as an individual connecting with you as an individual. It's I am losing myself within you. And of course, moments of that in sexual union or intimate union, I'm not talking about those peak experiences, (laughs) right? I'm talking about the loss of self on a day-to-day level. And how does that look? Like what would somebody, what does that sound like? How does that look? How, How does that feel versus closeness? So it can be so subtle. Like are all your passwords, your you and your partner's anniversary or name smashed, right? Or all your photos on social media, you and your partner, like, you know, just the, where's the autonomous self, right? It can be like that. It can be like, yes, we want to be considerate and check in with our partners, but can we actually make decisions for ourselves based on what do I actually want? I'm thinking of my grandmother was very enmeshed with her family and like we'd go out to eat and she couldn't order for herself. It was always like, well, what do you want? You know, or or we'd be like, do you want dessert, grandma? And she's like, well, do you want dessert? No, I don't want dessert. You get it if you want it. You know, it just be that kind of like little dance that we'd have to do. So I think those are some of the ways it can show up. Or if a partner just doesn't feel okay you know, or they're threatened if their partner wants to make appropriate independent decisions or the boundaries that someone might set that are actually healthy are feel really hurtful. 
Well, I like kind of doing this in a little more detail because then I can feel right under that it gets to the panic. It can look like controlling behavior. I can imagine like not understanding those deep pits and then attributing this bad feeling to the partner. You're doing these things to me. You're making me crazy. And all sorts of bad things happen. So I can feel like why someone would be very resistant and reluctant to go into that kind of terror and those kinds of fears. Totally. Right. And you're naming something huge, actually, when we hold everyone else outside of us responsible for our own experience, right? You made me feel this way. And it's like, absolutely, we are interdependent. You know, we can trigger things and do things to hurt others. However, we also are responsible for our own feelings and reactions. So yeah, it's getting to this root of taking responsibility for ourselves, which that's hard. It's hard and it's so attractive and it's so both attractive when someone else is doing it and it feels really good when we're doing it. So that's kind of approaching what the experience of security that you were talking about so that we're not just talking about the enmeshment. We're talking about like what it feels like when you have yourself and you have your grounded sense of yourself. And, you know, we talk about it on the show as in the green zone, basically where we're integrated. Our thoughts and feelings are clear. It's not confusing. We want more of it. Yeah, I I like to think of it as sort of feeling like you're the mountain and the weather that is maybe beautiful or stormy comes and goes, you know, and the beautiful flowers come and then the snow is there. And like, you know, there's the ebbs and flows of life, but there can be an inner stability that's like I'm here and having equanimity. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's That's a beautiful metaphor. I know people will enjoy that. Yeah, I'll do it as a visualization with clients yes. too, you know, like imagining yourself as and even like imagining the seasons come and go and just there's this inner stability that people can access and then they can return to as a resource. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could totally play with that metaphor too, because the mountain can support, you know, people exploring and <laughs> you just don't want a bulldozer over there or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. You keep expanding on it. <laughs> That's wonderful. So this all sounds great. And this is, we're talking about secure people doing this work or people that are working on their sense of security, doing this work with integrity, but it's not all that. I'm not talking about polyamory, but people. So can we sort out a little bit just where that things can go wrong? I mean, just how you see that as far as not pathologizing individuals, but kind of the way we're describing acting out the, the fears and the feelings that people are having trouble. Yeah, right. There's many, and that's part of the book too, is like there's places where things go wrong with our attachment and non-monogamy. And some of it is that when we, people transition, that lifting up of that structure of monogamy, it exposes a lot. So I think we touched on that already, but what it exposes is either, oh, we've actually haven't had secure functioning in a relational way. <laughs> oops, you know, now we have to figure that out while we're also trying to date other people. That's a lot. I also see just on an individual level, and whether you're in a partner or you're not, you know, just going into non-monogamy starts to, you go, oh, I didn't realize this insecure past I actually had and all their past trauma and stuff starts to get activated, right? And different insecure experiences start to bubble up. Sometimes the situation, the circumstances of non-monogamy can mimic the insecure environment that we talk about 
from people's childhood where you have like thinking of what you call the red, right? <laughs> the, the preoccupied anxious that came from, well, there is love, but it's inconsistent. It's here and then it's not, you know, and, and are you there? Oops, sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? So this can happen when you've got a partner and then someone new comes into their life and you were used to a certain amount of frequency of communication, frequency of seeing them, you know, how quickly they respond and suddenly they're less available. And it's not because they love you less or want you less, but time is limited. And so what I see a lot of is like, oh, that person is like, whoa, what's happening? Why do I now feel all this jealousy or all this anxiety? And it's like, yeah, because your attachment system is that actually it's the attachment protest that is saying, wait a minute, I'm not getting what I'm used to here. And that becomes an opportunity either for the person that has a new person in their life to say, oops, I am neglecting you a little bit. Let me like recourse, you know, or I actually can offer you less now. And we have to reevaluate whether that is enough for you or readjust to a new level. So that's something that happens. And readjust to a new level. What does that mean? New level of whether like a new frequency, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I, we're used to four nights a week and now we have to go down to three nights a week or two, or you're used that kind of, you know, frequency, or sometimes it is, you know, okay, maybe we're not as much as we thought we were. That's usually not the case. I see partners who want to, you know, keep the frequency, but they just have to figure out how to manage it all. The other attachment challenge is it can mimic the disorganized experience. And this particularly happens when partners have opened up together and in their monogamous life, you're each other's everything. I tell you everything from the profound to the mundane. (laughs) You're my confidant. You're my go-to. Like there isn't anything that I don't share with you. And you're my safe person. You're my comfort in this world. And now, even though we're consenting to this, it's your actions of being with someone else that feels threatening and is triggering my nervous system. So that disorganized experience of the one I want comfort from is also the threat. It's really hard to manage in a partnership. Like, whoa, this is strange. Or even just the healthy autonomy that like, oh, now there's things I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to divulge every detail of this other partner's life or my time with them because I need to respect their privacy. Whereas previously you might've hung out with a friend and you go home and you tell your partner every gossipy piece about it. (laughs) Those boundaries are now in place that didn't exist before. And that's a learning curve. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) It's a massive challenge, I imagine. It's a massive challenge, right? Well, what else in the research? You said that, you know, with the grounded research, was there any surprises that you found, something you weren't expecting? I'll have to think like that will maybe come up. But I mean, the other things I came to were like not about attachment and non-monogamy, right? They were sort of what my next book will be about is these other points. And non-monogamy will expose the cracks in your relationship. So a lot of these deep surface, sometimes even invisible issues all get shown power dynamics, issues around money. Wait, we're not actually sexually compatible at all. And we've just been tolerating that for a long time. One of us has been emotionally disengaged for 10 years, but I've been just living with it. (laughs) Like all of that, that people were sort of just tolerating becomes intolerable. 
you know, what we said earlier about like, look, you're causing me to have these feelings. One could easily say everything was fine. It's the talking about opening it up. That's the problem. And that's what I say. It's not the opening up itself. It's what happens in that process. So it's not non-monogamy itself that's causing these things. Because a lot of times it's like, no, these issues were actually there. We just weren't looking at them. Or non-monogamy puts you in a pressure cooker or a spotlight, whatever metaphor we want to use, that now I can't not see this and pay attention to this. And sometimes it's developmental too. We just weren't ready. For many women, especially, non-monogamy is a sexual liberation in many levels, you know, that women start to say, wait a minute, I'm allowed to be a sexual being, and I'm even allowed to want more than one thing, (laughs) you know, not just more than one person. And so the impact that sort of patriarchy has had on women starts to really shift And that's huge, right? So then people start to claim themselves and their desires. That's one of the other things that is on the list is there can be this awakening of the self. And many things in our life can catalyze an awakening of the self. And maybe that was a surprise, but I was like, whoa, there's all of these people who transition to non-monogamy and they have this like complete spiritual awakening of the self, you know, like a developmental shift that's happening. So people will have this entire awakening of the self, right? And, and sometimes it's described in spiritual language or the way if you look at how people describe their spiritual awakenings. I also see it as a developmental shift, right? If you know Keegan's developmental stages from the like conformist self to the self-authoring self. And that's a huge wake up. I can totally see that it's not, yeah, not just sexuality, but once you begin to open up to all the things that you haven't let yourself want, it makes me think of Glennon Doyle's work and the traps that we unconsciously have around ourselves. So just one thing, I could see it catalyzing changes in work. I mean, even this is a weird example, but it makes me think of COVID and how we were all just in our automation and doing it. And then when we were forced to shift, all of a sudden there's like career changes and all sorts of things that happen because of the sudden awareness of a freedom that we actually already had, but we didn't know that we had. Yeah. And that's a great parallel too, because you go, the pandemic, like people really felt condensed and pressured and you literally are confined to home, right? And yet what that pressure then kind of can expose and liberate. I'm thinking of in particular of folks that I've worked with where they're a monogamous pair and are trying to open up. And there's been the scenario of them being able to successfully do it, but also because not everybody can do it. Like you said, sometimes you're just monogamous. That's just who you are. And the grief that comes around both becoming more and more aware of themselves and then this distance that happens. And at some point, you know, this just heartfelt boundary of like, I'm so sorry, I can't do this with you. I only want to mention that because some of the other folks I've worked with, they can't envision. I think sometimes it feels like you have to do that, whether that's your orientation or not, because you want to hold on to your partner. Exactly. It becomes a really huge dilemma for both people. You have the one that wants this and then the reluctant partner, right? And the one that wants it, they wind up in this dilemma of, okay, this feels like the authentic expression of me is polyamory. 
but I might have to lose the love of my life or my marriage, my family, the way that it's been, you know? And then the other person is like, yeah, I don't want to lose this relationship, but you're asking me to do something I just can't do, don't want to do. In terms of working with people, I usually ask the reluctant partner though, as long as it's this tight, this, it's a hard line. Can you give this a try, a full effort? in a way that doesn't feel traumatic for you though. So you too have been doing your version of relationship for 10 or 20 years. Would you give your partner's version of relationship a year? Can you do that? And it's okay, but some people are just like, I literally can't do that. And we have to honor that. But I've seen people go, okay, I'll try. And then they become people who surprising, I've been surprised in that. Suddenly they find someone because it's like so many people, they can't believe it till they experience it in this scenario. They just are like, I can't imagine I'd ever find anyone else I'm attracted to. Oh, and they have all the negative stories. And I get it. Who wants to actually be dating and being on apps? (laughs) But then they meet someone and they go, oh, it's possible. And is a lot of this driven by communities through like apps and things like that? A lot of it is even before the pandemic. Yeah. Like, you know, there's different dating apps and some are more monogamous based. Some allow you to be more explicitly non-monogamous, you know, and then there's forums, there's Facebook groups, all of that. You know, when I was in Colorado, a lot of people would meet each other through meetups, things like that, whether they're support group meetups or social meetups that are sort of you know, catered more towards socializing, potentially dating. So there's worlds out there. There's whole communities and worlds. Yeah. And of course, cities are going to have more of it. But I mean, I see people successfully with multiple partners in rural areas. It's amazing. But I really like the what you're talking about related to the systematic change. Being able to get that systematic assumption and automation off is also enlivening and exciting. But also the system stuff can be so repressive. And this is part of going back to attachment research and the way that it's been talked about has been, you know, initially it was used to keep mothers at home. And then of course, it's always been heterosexist and very much monogamous. You know, that's the pinnacle. So and many of the therapists will be familiar with the couple bubble and things like that. Can you speak to that? Yes. I talk about this in the book. The majority of the research on attachment is highly mononormative, that it's done with monogamous couples (laughs) exploring their dynamics. And then what happens naturally, it's like implicit so much throughout it, that then when they tell you how to become secure, guess what? They basically tell you to be monogamous. Some people or research explicitly says be monogamous and that, and they even demonize non-monogamy as a form of insecure attachment and acting out. And it's like, does that happen? Of course. Does that happen in monogamy too? Of course (laughs) it happens in both ways, but you know, when they do a study, this would be another good example that people who are more dismissive style of attachment are more likely to have casual sex. Then you take people who are having casual sex and guess what the takeaway is? (laughs) 
that they're dismissive style. That's not necessarily the case. So that happens a lot when they explore monogamous folks and their insecure attachment styles and how that expresses sexually. Like there was even a study that said like sexting was an expression of an insecure attachment style. For a lot of folks, that might be their only way of connecting initially in their with their partner because they're a long distance relationship. Like sexting can be a complete expression of healthy sexuality and attachment, you know? So yes, there's that challenge, looking at non-insecure attachment styles and then taking those behaviors and projecting them onto others as insecure expressions. But then, you know, if it's not explicit, there's just implicit things like telling you how to create secure functioning and you have to have rituals at bedtime. Well, what if I don't live with my partner? (laughs) Or what if I can't create the couple bubble? So a lot of the way that specific behaviors that are told are highly mononormative and not everyone who's polyamorous, non-monogamous can even do. So just like with parents, how the the child has a different attachment style with different parents, I imagine it's not just that people in non-monogamous polycules (laughs) have all secure relationships. It's made up of individuals that have their own histories and so that they have different attachment styles with the different relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And that's often a surprise to people is maybe they knew about attachment and identified as having one style or they just read about it and go, oh, I've always been that way. And then they're like, oh my goodness, why am I feeling three different styles with each different person? And there was a study that did show that you could have a secure attachment with one partner and it was like, you could then have any kind of other style with someone else. That is so powerful because it also emphasizes the didactic, the relational part of attachment. It's not just inside of you. Right. I mean, even with friendships, you could notice like, oh, right. Like if someone's coming too much at me, I wind up withdrawing a little bit. If someone's a little far away, I lean in more. Yeah, I become know? a crazy texture. Right, exactly. <laughs> Why haven't you responded? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah so, that's funny. In so many ways. And that's kind of, I introduced that in the introduction. I say like, yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge here about human connection and bonding that like, I don't want to throw that out. And yet we need to be critical and say, wow, it's also highly mononormative. And it makes me think of, you know, most of us, when when you ask like, oh, how do a sperm and an egg, how does conception of a human happen? Most of us would say the sperm penetrates the egg. And people looked under the microscope and that's what they saw. Guess what? That's not how it happens. (laughs) Right. That is a highly like gender role binary, you know, masculine feminine interpretation that the masculine penetrates the feminine. That was like a patriarchy paradigm that literally informed perception. They then found, oh no, there's this whole conversation that the egg and the spring, there's like cells early in around the cervix that sort of sort through the sperm and they escort other sperm forward. (laughs) And then the egg, like can, there's certain ones that like do things around and then, you know, the egg opens and sort of picks with the sperm. Right. So it's just like, Oh, how interesting. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. Right. Just so right. Like, and yet it's not that there weren't some truths, 
but like it's not a complete story because of these paradigms that are ancient. I love that example. If we can, uh, before we wrap up, go back to trauma for just a minute, because I was thinking about another sort of subset that I have some experience with that have been really difficult to sort through are folks that are highly traumatized, that it is a little confusing if it's acting out, if like the BDSM is an extension of their trauma or if it is part of their self-expression. So I just wondered what your thoughts were around on the more extreme end of trauma and how that that interplays with some of these. Yeah. And this is a tricky one too, because it's, it can be both and same thing. Monogamy can be actually an expression of someone's trauma too, right? Or shutting down of their sexuality can also be an expression of their trauma or very vanilla sex can also be, you know, just so to not take the BDSM and go up, oh, that's just a traumatic expression. But yes, are there people who go towards BDSM and they have a trauma history? Absolutely. When I work with those clients, what we see sometimes is it's can be quite amazing is that it's the BDSM that helps them heal their trauma because a situation that they were in non-consensually, they now get to consensually engage with and take back their power, even if they're the one that's in the submissive role and there's a voice and there's always a no that's allowed there. So a lot of people find their healing of their trauma through these modalities. So to not exclude that from the equation. And then sometimes, yes, I've seen people who we work through their trauma and they're just kinky, right? If you know the erotic blueprints, she has that as one of the erotic blueprints is, is kinky, right? <laughs> that that's just what our sexual expression is. We like to play in certain dynamics, you know, that's really can be really healthy. And then I've also seen some people go, oh yeah, maybe I don't need some of these things in the way I used to anymore because it, it was a healing experience for them or a healing period of time. But what you're saying through all of that is that it's not the behavior, it's the intention. And the person being able to tolerate the feelings to be able to sort out, does this feel good to me? Am I doing this because my partner wants me to do it and I'm just submitting out of an old system? Or where's my pleasure and where's my voice in this? Right. If it's truly your pleasure and your voice, great. Who am I to judge what that looks like? But if you're doing some of these BDSM things and you feel more traumatized, we need to like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> but I don't see that it's usually the case. No, oh, that's so good to hear. And I really do see this conversation as disruptive and it's intentionally disruptive. And the folks that are brave enough to find these spaces to express themselves in this full way, they're disrupting a system that has been really toxic to many people. So I'm excited about that. And I think that, like you said, the freedom that comes with it on a number of levels, not just sexuality or romance, there's a wholeness that can come through it. So I, I thought maybe we could end with you saying a little bit about some of the benefits of considering it. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many benefits. To quote Esther Perel, she says, you know, we now expect one person to meet the needs that an entire village used to meet, right? So just a mat, so so many people, they open up and they find more partners and it's 
Yes, there is increased sexual satisfaction, not just with those other partners, but often if it was from opening a relationship, that relationship really reaps the benefits. <laughs> it can like rekindle and revivify that sexuality where we find a better groove together, right? Because we're being more honest. We're having conversations we weren't allowed to have or, oh, good, I can go get this kinky expression here. I'm not pressuring you for that. We can have the sex we have and I can just really value it. So there often is like an up-leveling, what is that? The tide rises all the boats right? of, of sexuality for folks. More, you know, need fulfillment on many levels, emotional needs, intellectual needs. A lot of people have just more positive, like novel experiences. Like, oh, good. I can go play racquetball with this partner. I really love racquetball. <laughs> and with this partner, I have other things that we do that are meaningful to us. For parenting, it can be incredible. Like I have a three adult household and we joke that we're almost at the right ratio with one child. <laughs> like almost <laughs> three to one, maybe doesn't. Yeah. So a lot of people feel more support in their lives through child, through family, financially. If you are actually, you know, entwining lives with more people, that can also be a benefit. There's a lot of things that people benefit from of just having more love, more support, more folks that are involved. That's wonderful. And it's and it's not for everybody. So nobody here this has pressure, but we do need to spend some time opening around it because unconsciously, you know, there's that push away of anything new or different. So that's wonderful. So if people wanted to know more, how would they find you or what are other resources that they should turn to? My website is jessicafern.com. Right now, I'm not taking new clients, but if anyone reaches out to me through my website, I will do like case consultations for therapists. That's something that is still open. I love doing that. It's so valuable. Yeah, exactly. So that's an option for folks. Right now, I'm in the process of writing the second book that sort of goes along with this. So there are some resources on my website, but I'm not offering any fresh trainings at the moment. Yeah, because I'm focusing on the next book. Oh, that's exciting. Well, I can't wait to give it a little boost there. And for those listening that want to commune around this book, we will be doing a some level, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet. We have reading pods, we call them with our community, where the small groups get together and read a book and discuss it over a period of time. We also do a book club where I'll go through the book slowly. And then we meet live and talk about it. Who knows what we're going to do, but we're for sure going to follow up and do deeper work with this book. So thank you for that. And anybody listening, the way that you get access to that, you just, it's as little as $5 a month. You can join our community. It is at therapistsuncensored.com backslash join. And you get extra episodes and some of these deep dives and all kinds of things like that. So we welcome you there. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been really valuable and keep us posted related to the next book. I would love to get you back on and, and talk about it, update it. I'd love to talk more with you. Yes. Thank right. you, Sue. Thank you so much. Yes. Bye. We've been talking to Jessica Fern, author of Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Consensual Non-Monogamy. If this material has been valuable to you, and I imagine if you're hearing this part of the episode that it has, we really encourage you to share the show and to give us a rating and review those are the two ways, basically word of mouth, that help other people discover this kind of very cool content. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Simple Practice. 
it has saved my rear. I can't tell you how many times I'm not good at administrative work. And basically, once I got it set up, which wasn't that difficult, it is just a click of a button. And it's incredible. So whether you're a private practitioner, or maybe anything in private practice, so a speech pathologist or physical therapist that works out of your home, anything like that, this can help you out. I promise. It's HIPAA compliant. There's hundreds of thousands of clinicians using it across the world. And we personally endorse it. It's good stuff. So go to simplepractice.com backslash Therapist Uncensored to get a deal for our listeners. All right. Thanks for listening. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 